This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera and more. An oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording on September the 1st, 2019, and this is a Director's Salon edition. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the Director's Salon we just had. We'll be playing the full recording of that. Um, and before that, I wanted to say that even though it's only the second episode, our very first Director Salon edition, we've already had feedback from listeners, and I'm just glad someone was listening. Uh, but what a listener it was. It was a wonderful comment about, uh, well, actually taking issue with one of the things that I said there that I say often, which is that I love not what opera is, but what opera can be. Uh, and we had a spirited email uh, discussion um, I think this listener was worried that what I meant with that was undoing a vocal tradition, a tradition of, of good singing, of healthy singing, of focusing on the integrity of the voice. Uh, so I assured them that that is very much not the case. Uh, I am a big proponent of the bel canto. Um, I recognize that the bel canto is only one style of singing within a very particular repertoire and what we consider good singing now and good bel canto singing is not what it was 100 years ago and not what it was 150 years ago and there was a whole different way of very beautiful and equally as healthy singing that existed before the bel canto and concurrent to the bel canto in other parts of the world but that said I have the greatest respect uh, for the bel canto and I agree wholeheartedly with this listener when they say that it's good, healthy singing, focusing on technique that allows uh, profound musical and extra musical ideas to be realized. And technique is absolutely necessary for that. Uh, what the discussion also brought to light, though, and what I find more illuminating, is uh, how, and I know I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it until I figure it out, how poor a word opera is to describe such a rich tradition and such a potentially powerful art form. Um, I think when this particular listener heard opera, for them, they thought about a heritage of great singing and a repertoire of, of uh, meaningful compositions and beautiful compositions. Um, and when I say opera, I'm talking about a overall dramatic form and tradition that I feel has sort of lost its course and isn't living up to its own potential to change people's lives. Um, I'm going to continue to search for a word to use instead. Uh, I was at the Viva Verdi rehearsal last night and it's, it's extremely special. Um, it delights in the mystery of things, which, which I love uh, art to do on the stage. And uh, it, is, it is something quite new. It's not an opera. It's certainly not a concert. It's a piece of theater in the larger sense, but not in the strict sense. Um, there's a line from, I think it's Shelley, talking about uh, Shakespeare and Lear in particular, where he describes emotional multitude. And in the meantime, uh, for lack of a better word, I'm calling this Viva Verdi an emotional multitude. Um, I hope you can all make it. It opens September the 8th 
and runs through the 23rd, um, it is, is, is truly something special and, and not, to, not to be missed. Um, and while we're on the subject of comments, I'm struggling. I feel like at the beginning of this podcast, there really should be some music, but um, it's hard for me to choose what music should be. I just love so many musics. So listeners out there, if you have a suggestion on what should be the opening theme or themes to Intune, the in-series podcast, I'm all ears. Uh, what I'm going to play for you now is the recording of our director salon, which was this previous week. It was August the 27th, uh, held at Casa Italiana in Washington, D.C. Um, the director salons are a format that InSeries has done for several years, and what they are is about two weeks before the performance, we introduce the production. We have the creative team, the director, the conductor, the designers, as well as many of the artists talk about the piece, explain um, its background and how we're producing it, and also to perform selections from it. I think a lot about how to go further in the way we engage our audience and how we um, make them feel part of the process and understand the process. And it's also important to me that our uh, listeners and our audience members understand uh, that potential that I see in opera to be a essential part of the conversations we have in our community um, that, that are contemporary, universal, uh, relevant, whatever, but are the conversations of the day. And to help that, uh, I've been extending the format of the director Salon to invite scholars, thinkers, um, experts from diverse and divergent fields to come together and to share their thoughts on the theme of the piece we're working, or we're currently working on. Uh, and in that way to hopefully reveal the interconnectedness of all these different subjects and for us to understand more acutely how the piece is connected to our daily lives and our daily experience of life. So to that end, for Viva Verdi, we were so fortunate to have three uh, luminaries from the Washington, D.C. Uh, arts and Sciences, the, from the Washington National Opera, the head of their Domingo K. Fritz Young Artist Program, uh, Robert Ainsley, who's also the head of their, and I think this is particularly exciting, their American New Works Program, uh, came to, to share his thoughts on music and on Verdi. From the Washington Shakespeare Theater, Drew Lichtenberg, who's their dramaturg, uh, came, and he's a, a brilliant man and speaks so uh, elegantly about uh, about Shakespeare and Lear and where Lear fits in in the canon of, of human creation. And finally, from the National Institutes of Health, we had neuroscientist uh, Dr. Drew, Drew Jangrau, who's been working on the Sound Health Initiative, which studies the effect of music on the brain. And they'll be this weekend at the Kennedy Center, September 7th and 8th, having concerts and lectures and, and many fascinating events uh, just on that about the power of music and why music is so um, meaningful to the human brain. Uh, in this discussion, uh, they, were, they were very good-natured. I was super nervous, uh, but we had a, a lovely talk about Lear, about aging, about um, 
the idea that one has to give up everything in order to gain something about what Lear is about, why Verdi was obsessed with Lear. It was a just a fascinating mind walk. Um, we had hoped to have a lot of performances from our artists, but as ha as happens sometimes with new works, uh, they really wanted to have uh, additional rehearsal time. So we asked Natalie Conte, who's our uh, dreamboat of a soprano, um, uh, a sort of powerhouse of musical subtlety and and as as I say in the vernacular, pipes to go on for days. Um, she came and sang the Liberame or the opening of it, and I did my best, uh, which isn't very good impersonation of Nana Ingvarsson, who's our wonderful actress, and uh, read the text that goes along with that. So you'll hear discussion, you'll hear some of that musical performance, and again, a little more discussion, and we opened it up in the end for questions from our audience. Now this director's salon, my first time doing it, it turned out to be Fascinating, yes, but also long. I'm going to put the whole episode up here. Uh, they won't usually be this long, but I want to give everyone a chance to, um, to listen in full. In case you don't make it to the end, let me say now, uh, Viva Verdi opens September 8th and runs to the 23rd. You can call our box office or find us online at www.inseries.org. Uh, this will be our second podcast available on iTunes, so I encourage you to uh, subscribe. We're going to try to put one up around once a week. I can't promise, but I'm going to do my darndest to, to make that happen. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on all the social this and that's. Um, and please do feel free to send me comments and let me know your thoughts. My name is Timothy Nelson. I'm the artistic director of the Inseries, and it's my great privilege and pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. I need to make a special welcome to our podcast listeners. That might seem strange. Uh, so one of the many new things at the Inseries is that we've started a, a podcast, so a different way to connect with us and to keep, keep uh, up to date with what's going on. Uh, I can't promise it's going to be every week, but I'm going to try. Uh, and that'll have sometimes just me talking about what, what's up in the office, what we're working on. Uh, sometimes I'll be interviewing uh, some of the artists, uh, the creative teams, and sometimes it will be recordings of the director's salons. So uh, this this should be up in the in the next week. But you guys won't need it because you will have already heard. Um, I want to give a special thank you to Casi Italiana for hosting us in this lovely space tonight. Um, and I've, I've promised them that I would announce two lovely concerts they have coming up. We're pretty well sold out, not completely, but almost, for opening night. So I don't mind saying that they also have an event on the, <laughs> on the 8th of September at 6.30. A wonderful concert with a soprano and pianist. And then on September the 29th, also at 6.30, they have a, a, a string trio from, from Italy. So something to check out. Um, and I'd also like to give a thank you, as always, to the board of directors of the Inseries for making what we do possible, and for all of you for being here. Um, 
The director salons are, of course, something that's become um, a staple of the in series and a great way to learn more about the productions. And uh, as I've been thinking about how we can connect more directly and engage more profoundly with, uh, with our audience and our community, uh, I, my mind's been turned to a, a study by the Wallace Foundation that they did in connection with Steppenwolf Theater in, in Chicago. And uh, the Steppenwolf Theater was having a problem. They had a reduction in season subscribers, and they, had, they noticed that people that were coming for one show didn't necessarily come again for a second show, which is a problem. Um, and in the course of this study that was funded by the Wallace Foundation, but which also included um, uh, research uh, from, from psychiatrists, they found that what their audiences really wanted was a chance to engage intellectually with the work of the theater, a chance to connect not just in the performance, but before the performance to learn more, and after the performance to reflect on what they had learned. Uh, and that aspect of learning being an ongoing process, not something that stops when we graduate the, the 12th grade, but something we do our whole lives, and as a way to build an arts organization by being a partner in, in all of our journeys for increased learning, uh, is something that I want uh, to expand the director's salon to include. So, uh, <laughs> we're doing this crazy thing, here we are. <laughs> I have these uh, three lovely guests, they've never met each other before. Um, <laughs> they're from totally different fields. Uh, and I brought them here to, uh, to talk about Verdi, and the Requiem, and King Lear, and neuroscience. And uh, I've done my best to, to prepare as well as I could, but we'll see where it goes. Um, this morning, I was, I was telling my fiance how, um, how nervous I was to be doing this and how difficult it was to prepare for a panel discussion where everyone's from different, different fields. And in, in a huff of stress, I smugly said, well, how would you answer the question, um, where do you see the connection between Lear's journey through emotional multitude and your work as an anesthesiologist. <laughs> and he said they both put people to sleep. <laughs> so look, we're going to attempt not to do that this evening. Uh, the, the format for this evening, before, before I introduce our guests, um, is that we're going to have a conversation, a guided conversation, I'm going to call it, uh, through, through topics that, that I've tried to organize. And then uh, we're going to have uh, a musical excerpt from the Requiem. I've written here, explain the sausage making. <laughs> what I mean by that is um, sometimes making art and making courageous art and new art is, um, is, is a bit messy. And I hope like, one thing you'll take from, from tonight uh, is an understanding that what we're doing is something completely untried and, and new and experimental. Um, and and the cast, uh, the director, the cast, our wonderful actress, uh, Nana Ingerson, came to me and asked for an extra night of rehearsal. And being, being a responsive and a good artistic director, I wanted to support them in their artistic process. So I've allowed them not to all be here this evening and instead to be very close on the other side of the Capitol in rehearsal. Uh, but we are extremely blessed. If you know the Requiem at all, the one thing that makes it impossible to do the Requiem is not having the right soprano. And we're very blessed to have uh, Natalie Conte here, who is our soprano. I'm going to do my very best impersonation of Nana Ingvarsson, which is not going to be very good, but to read some of the text. And Robert Ainsley has graciously agreed. 
to, to play the piano for, for the section that we'll do. Uh, and then we'll have a little more conversation. We'll open for, for some questions and hopefully some answers if, uh, if you have them, and then, and then a reception to follow. Um, so let me, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guests. Right here to my left um, is Robert Ainsley from Durham. Yes, yeah, from Durham. definitely from Durham. <laughs> uh, he was awarded an organ scholarship at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, uh, and graduated with a degree in mathematics. Yeah, no, I, I, I the, don't know how I managed The connections begin. <laughs> um, and later that year became a senior organ scholar at Christ Church, Greenwich, Connecticut, while completing a master's degree in solo piano at Manus College of Music. Um, he joined the Metropolitan Opera Lindemann Young Artist Development Program, and his two years in the program culminated in his acting as assistant conductor and pianist for Wagner's Steve Alcura. <laughs> Meister Gergiev and Vasilio Domingo. Uh, he was the co-founder and principal conductor, and this is actually how I first uh, became aware of him, with the Greenwich Music Festival, and conducted some of my favorite repertoire, Purcell's Dado Aeneas, Orff's Carmina Milana, Handel's Ode for the Birthday of Queen Anne, uh, Monteverdi's Return of the Lulisse, Ullman's The Emperor of Atlantis, should sound familiar, I hope, and uh, Hans Werner Henze's El Cimarron, which will sound familiar, I hope. Uh, until recently, Mr. Ainsley was the Associate Music Director and Chorus Master for Portman Opera, where he also conducted The Return of Ulysses, um, Albert Herring, Callisto, um, Trouble in Tahiti, and he was the Head of Music for Minnesota Opera and Head of Music Staff and Chorus Master at Opera Theatre St. Louis. He's currently Program Director for the Young Artist Program, the uh, Domingo K. Fritz Young Artist Program at the Washington National Opera where he's also, and most excitingly, if I may say so, program director for the New Works, uh, the American New Works project there. Very hard sitting and listening to a bio about Isn't it? This is my form of revenge. <laughs> but very nicely read, I may say. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, to his left is Drew Lichtenberg, who's graciously joined us from the Washington Shakespeare Theater, where he is literary manager and resident dramaturg. Uh, a writer, a teacher, a professional dramaturg, and published theater critic, Drew is also a translator and adapter. His research interests include Erwin Piscator and the origins of epic theater, German romanticism and modernism, as well as Shakespeare and early modern performance. He is adjunct faculty member at Catholic University for this fall, 2018, too late to sign up for his courses. I don't know. <laughs> joining a lot of sophomore musical theater majors. <laughs> Before and during his tenure at the Shakespeare Theater, Drew has worked as professional dramaturg with the Roundabout Theater, the National Theater of Great Britain, Woolly Mammoth Theater Company, Baltimore Center Stage, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the Great Plains Theater Conference, the MacArthur Theater Center at Princeton University, Yale Repertory Theater, the Williamstown Theater, and the Public Theater. Uh, he holds an MFA and a DFA in Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism from the Yale School of Music. And to this... School of Drama. Oh, <laughs> it's a habit, I can't uh, And to his left is um, Dr. David Jagrow, uh, who is from the National Institutes of Health. Um, Robert and I were recently at the Opera America conference, and they uh, mentioned at this conference in one of the seminars uh, the Sound Health Initiative at the Kennedy Center. 
And the first thing I did when I got back to the hotel was to write to the National Institutes of Health, and they said, we have the man for you. <laughs> very kindly agreed to join us. Uh, he received his PhD in biomedical engineering from Columbia University in New York City, where his dissertation employed techniques in EEG, eye tracking, and brain-computer interfaces. His current research investigates the bold, or do we say B-O-L-D? Bold and ocular correlates of sustained attention and mind-wandering in naturalistic scenarios. He is an engineer, neuroscientist, and enthusiastic teacher with particular interest in naturalistic neuroengineering, the study of the human brain's response to complex realistic situations, and the development of brain-computer interfaces designed for the real world. He's also a musician, though it's not on his bio here. <laughs> his research makes use of EEG, eye tracking, brain computer interfaces, and machine learning, and his teaching makes creative use of technology and project-based learning to help students move towards solving real-world problems. He is now a scientist in the Emotion and Development Branch at the National Institute of Mental Health, a group that studies mood disorders in children and adolescents. Wow. Bio was written for other science nerds. <laughs> It's exactly what we're looking for. I feel very stupid. <laughs> um, I, I want to I take us first to, to something that's a little less intimidating than those bios. Um, and, and to ask some, some personal questions uh, from, from each of our, our guests. Um, and later on, I'm hoping the conversation can become broader and you guys will feel free to jump in on each other. We only have one mic, so, so, so don't be too violent. Um, Rob. Yes. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, for you personally, and um, for, for the community we, we live in, why opera? And then if you might be able to narrow it down to talk about why Verity. Oh. Uh, why opera? Um, well, it, the, the thing that the music does, um, and the thing that the voice does, uh, are the, the two parts of that that set it apart from straight theatre, really. And music is able to express, in an abstract way, we just don't understand human emotions and states of being, mental states, in an immediate and direct way that crosses all other boundaries. It doesn't matter which language you speak, which culture you come from, you understand when Maestro Verdi is telling you that someone is angry, or insane, or upset, or joyous, or... Uh, and it, it, still, it still amazes me that a, a certain combination of chords can cause the same exact, exceedingly powerful emotional reaction in every human being. I don't know why that happens, uh, but it does. Um, maybe you can enlighten us on uh, The thing that the voice does uh, is connect us even more strongly and powerfully to those emotions. I, I firmly believe that the voice is the first and the greatest of all musical instruments. It has a nuance and a variety of color and a primal utterance that is uh, unique. It's, it's a perfect instrument especially when it's functioning well. But not only that, but it's connected to language, and it lets you put words on top of it. So I, I think opera is always known as a Gesamtkunstwerk. It's the, the greatest of all art forms uh, in many ways, because it's so total, and it's so involving, uh, and it 
it has a direct emotional impact that goes beyond the meanings of the word and even beyond the immediate happenings of the drama. It, is a, it immediately transports us into a symbolic, metaphoric, universal state. The thing about Verdi is that he is the greatest of all maestros in that effect. He uses the voice that we call Verdi bel canto on steroids. And bel, bel canto is already the human voice at its absolute um, maximum. It's, it's, it's everything the voice can accomplish, and Verdi takes it one step further uh, and makes you do all of that, but do it emotionally as well. So, uh, in terms of the way he writes with the voice, but also how big and complex and important the themes he's able to handle. You know, we have these little bel canto comedies where there'll be a tragedy and someone will die and there'll be plots and that. But with Verdi, you're dealing with you know, the, the, the grieving of a nation, or you're dealing with real insanity, or you're dealing with genuine love and genuine loss in a way that we can all relate to, and that is overwhelmingly powerful. And it's great music. So, that's, that's a good start. <laughs> it's a good start indeed. Um, sort of the same question, Drew. Why theater and why Shakespeare? Um, I'll answer that in two ways. Why theater? I think one reason is that theater may be unique among art forms or maybe along with dance and music. It's one of the oldest art forms we have. You can't have a theater without an audience. Theater happens at one time in one place. It is intrinsically a unifying art form. Uh, both hierarchically and also horizontally. It's, a, it's an intrinsically democratic art form. In ancient Athens, you were not a member of the polis, of the body politic, unless you attended the theater and voted on the winner of the festival of Dionysus. Um, why Shakespeare? I'd like to answer that by saying, what is Shakespeare? Shakespeare is, uh, for whatever reason, and I think there are a couple specific ones, the body of texts second maybe to the Judeo-Christian Bible, maybe the Quran, but I think in some ways superseding them that in our culture we have revisited these stories, we have retold these stories in part in order to understand and to explain ourselves. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's, it's actually, it actually has to do with the voice that you were talking about, the bel canto power. Shakespeare wrote for a theater where there were no sets, where there was no director, uh, there was no script except for the prompters, the stage manager's copy. You, you gave out sides to every individual actor of their own lines, and the actor was responsible for costuming themselves, for learning the lines, for showing up, for knowing where to stand. It's like WNO. <laughs> <laughs> and the only, uh, the only aesthetically unifying uh, factor in the theater was language. Language assumes an importance in Shakespeare's theater that supersedes everything else. Uh, and, and, you know, by, by the 19th century, scenography is the paramount thing in theater. It's all about painted sets, it's all about uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin with Eliza being chased by dogs across the Ohio River. It becomes about spectacle and sensation. Uh, but in Shakespeare's theater, language, poetry, uh, assumes that immense importance. It assumes all the emotional importance, all the spiritual 
importance that other things would later in history. And I should also point out that Shakespeare is uh, a marvelously effective piece of cultural propaganda. Uh, I think it was Ian Bostrich in the New York Review of Books recently wrote that there are three things uh, that the diffusion of English culture uh, has made possible. One is Shakespeare, the other is the English choral or hymn singing tradition, and the third is association football or soccer, <laughs> which is the most popular sport in the world. And I, uh, you know, Shakespeare is unique in drama in a way no other playwright is, and I think you have to compare him to Mozart in music or Michelangelo or Leonardo in the visual arts to get a sense of his stature, of his immenseness. And even even then, I think Shakespeare... Maybe towers above them. Yeah, I mean, not in, may, let's not talk about greatness, but at least in the way it's embedded in the culture, and we say we say 10 things a day at least that we have no idea actually came from Shakespeare. Similar question, and yet totally different. Uh, why science, and why the brain? Uh, <laughs> I you might ask that. <laughs> I was uh, originally an electrical engineer before I discovered neuroscience, um, which I think I liked because it was this combination of uh, creativity and hard logic that comes when you're creating a new electronic device. Um, and I discovered neuroscience around my junior year of college um, when I took a course called Abnormal Psychology. Um, and it was just full of stories of the craziest ways that a person's brain could malfunction that you could possibly imagine. It was more bizarre than anything I could have come up with. Um, you've, some of you have probably read the works of Oliver Sacks, the wonderful storyteller, uh, coming up with a story entitled The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. It's so evocative, it's a wonderful story. And I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed neuroscience is that it's, it's stories of people that really drew me in. But it still has that connection to this group, the logic that I really enjoyed about engineering. And it's this, this way to help people by just learning more about them. Um, there's not many fields that can allow you to do that. Um, and it's a way of answering or attempting to answer some of these, these questions that music and, and uh, drama bring out in us. Why do these create the same feelings in all of us? Um, why do these things bring us together? Why do they cross cultures? Um, and neuroscience gives us a set of really fun tools to try to answer those questions and to get a very real picture of why it might be happening. So my goal this evening is to say as little as possible. Um, but but I, I want to put us all on equal footing because these lovely gentlemen and you as an audience may not know exactly what Viva Verity the Promise End is. And I feel I should say just a short, a short word about what it is before we dig in. Um, when, when I was uh, asked to come on as artistic director, um, I'm really blessed that the season was presented as something valuable and something that I could put my own uh, imprint on because a lot of times when there's a new artistic director, the, the season's already planned. But one thing that I was told was that the, the opening had to be Verity. Um, and, and I struggled with this uh, for a couple reasons. I, I didn't want to do just a reduction of a Verity opera. I didn't think that best represented um, 
what, what, what vision I wanted to bring to the company and what the company could do best. Um, and at the same time, I didn't really want to do a Verity cabaret because, and, and maybe Robbie will agree with me, I hope. Uh, I feel Verity is not a composer that um, excerpts well. And what I mean by that is that they're great artists. They're, they're, we can see the, sing the Liviamo at every fundraiser from here to eternity. <laughs> but Verity as a composer is diminished when his pieces are taken out of context. His brilliance rests in the total dramatic architecture of the piece and the way that the quartet for Rigoletto connects to what comes after it and, and what came before it. Uh, and so I thought, well, why not start subtle and do the Requiem? <laughs> um, so what, what's always fascinated me about, Ver about Verity is his fascination with Lear and that he always wanted to write a Lear. Um, it was a dream project of his. Uh, he started, he had a, a couple times, he had a couple librettos, two librettos that tried to do it, um, and, and it, and it never came to completion, and it's one of those great, one of a couple what-ifs in, in the musical lexicon, what if this, this King Lear existed. Um, that fascinated me, and also that Verdi, and I'll talk about this a little later, um, perhaps his greatest, most meaningful contribution isn't music at all, but this retirement home that he founded in Milan for aging singers uh, who, who hadn't taken care of, of their wealth and, and didn't have the means to support themselves, that they could come and spend their last days there, and it's still going in Milan. This has always fascinated me. So, so I came up with the idea of Verdi himself in, the, in this retirement home, the Casa di Riposo, um, Hearing his own funeral procession, the story of Verdi's funeral is amazing. There's hundreds of thousands of people marching through the streets of Milan, singing the Vacanciero, conducted by Toscanini. I mean, <laughs> what, a, what a story. So this piece imagines Verdi there, alone, listening to his own funeral procession coming, uh, accompanied only by the ghosts of future singers that will, will uh, live in, in this home he's built for them. And as he waits, he imagines King Lear, and he meditates upon King Lear, and he tells the, talks to the audience about King Lear, and he sort of uh, imagines the opera that he never got a chance to write. So in a way, this is us giving Verdi his Lear um, through, the, through the Requiem. Um, and in finding, now one of the challenges for this is finding the voice for Lear, how, I mean for, for Verdi, what does Verdi sound like? Um, and I found that a bit presumptuous of myself to try and write Verdi's voice. Um, but, but I was quite blessed in finding uh, the text of Marjorie Garber, who's a, uh, a critic of early modern theater at Harvard. And I meant to pick up her book as, a, as, a, as just a source. And as I started to read it, she speaks so beautifully, she writes so beautifully about Lear, that with her permission, um, I used her words as the voice of Verdi talking about Lear. So, so uh, in a way, it is a dramatization of a chapter from a textbook on, on the works of Shakespeare. Um, with that said, um, don't ask me any difficult questions. <laughs> I'm going to start with Drew. This test is very hard. Yeah, I'm going to start with Drew with, with what may be the most complicated question, but I think we have to get out of the way. Can you just give us a brief lesson on, on Lear, why it's important, where it comes from, what it's about? <laughs> and, and if you could tie up with what, is what do we mean when we say something is Shakespearean? What does that mean to say something is Shakespearean? Seems that mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to answer the second question right off the bat, I th I, Shakespearean, and Gar Garber also writes about this in her great book, Shakespeare and Modern Culture, Shakespearean is often invoked when people want to reach for something usually having to do with scale or size. So we, when we are confronted with a crisis of an Ixonian proportion, 
uh, we say Nixon was really a Shakespearean character. Uh, as if that explains it all. And then you start thinking, well, is he like Richard III? Is he like Macbeth? Is he like King Lear? You know, people don't really mean a specific Shakespeare reference when they say something is Shakespearean. They're just using it the way they'll say Kafka-esque to describe a gloomy allegory of modern life or a satire of bureaucracy. It's, it's kind of a floating Orwellian is another one of these words that gets invoked all the time, which I think George Orwell would hate. He would think that's the epitome of cloudy language. So I always try to avoid calling things Shakespearean unless they're actually written by Shakespeare, unless I'm talking about a specifically concrete example. Um, what is King Lear about? Uh, again, my way of answering this will be by not answering the question. Um, it's, it's, an, it's actually Shakespeare's adaptation of an ancient fairy tale that's in the Chronicles, the English Chronicles of Holland's Head, where he gets all of his material for the history plays. It's a story set in ancient pre-Christian Britain, written around the same time we think as Cymbeline, which has a similar pre-Christian British setting. Uh, and you know, this is, the, this is the Jacobean era when King James was Scottish, so there was, all of a sudden there was this vogue for plays about Britain instead of England, right? Shakespeare is kind of, has one eye on his patron here, writing all these plays that are set in a world that is agreeable to this idiosyncratic Scottish king. Um, and, and the original ending of the fairy tale of King Lear is a happy one. Cordelia marries Edgar at the end of the fairy tale. So it's not, I think, a reach to say that Shakespeare's audience, seeing his King Lear, would have been completely shocked and completely horrified by what they saw in his play. And in fact, there is an anonymous play from 1605 titled King Lear by a playwright whose name we don't have, L-E-I-R, that has the happy ending that Shakespeare refuses to give his audiences. So we know that whether this was written before King Lear or in response to Shakespeare's King Lear, the ending of the play and also the kind of cavalcade of suffering in the play. This is a play where Gloucester, Lear's oldest friend and main political advisor, is blinded his eyes are torn out in front of us on stage. It's a play where King Lear is basically cast out of his uh, house and home by his two elder daughters, Regan and Goneril, and is uh, a king stripped of all but title, wandering around in the middle of the night in a storm on the cliffs of Dover, shouting into the wind. Uh, so it's clear that Shakespeare was working out something uh, very personal in this play. Um, Lear is also a play that has really entered, I would say, the canon of classics later than his other plays. For at least 150 years, there was a Baudelaireized version of King Lear that held the stage, written by a playwright named Nahum Tate, which gave audiences the happy ending. It wasn't until the late 19th, early 20th century that Shakespeare's original text was restored to the theater. There's something about this play that feels uh, 20th century. It feels uh, existential in its nihilism. Um, Lear says early in the play, nothing will come of nothing. And by the end of the play, he just repeats the word nothing five times in a row. 
And it, it's Shakespeare deliberately breaking the line of iambic pentameter, nothing, 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 instead of da 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 which is the way a normal line of verse would go in a Shakespeare play. And it is Shakespeare um, really reaching the limits of tragedy. He would largely abandon tragedy after Lear for his late plays, which were experimental uh, romances, like Cymbeline, like The Winter's Tale, like The Tempest. Uh, maybe Coriolanus kind of lives in the same world as, as King Lear, and Coriolanus is another play that it would take 20th century political developments to really make sense of. Uh, so, so yeah, my, my way of answering what Lear is about is it's about the really big troubling questions that I think we all wrestle with, uh, but especially men at the end of their life, thinking about whether they've lived meaningful lives, whether they've been good fathers, whether, whether they've left behind anything that will have meaning. I'm, I was gonna bring this up later, but you, it's like we, it's like we talked about this before, so. Because um, uh, you said exactly what I was gonna ask. Uh, Rob, you've done a lot of uh, early Italian work, Monteverdi, Cavalli. Uh, and, and contemporary work. And I think it's easier for us to imagine Lear existing as a early modern Italian piece in that there are multitudes of plots and there are serious characters, tragic characters, and there's this great multiplicity happening on the stage. And we can easily, as, as Drew said, imagine it in, in a 20th century context as a sort of a postmodern piece. Um, it's harder to imagine and when I try to imagine what Verdi's Lear would have actually been, uh, we have a description of him on how many characters. It would have been still, a great storm scene. <laughs> it would have been a heck of a storm scene. Um, I wonder if you could talk about Verdi's approach to Shakespeare and, and with, with the knowledge you have of Lear, why you think Lear might have proven difficult for him to, to, to make into a piece given the stylistic structure he was working in. I'll do my best. Uh, first of all, setting context here, this Nahum Tate who sort of messed with Shakespeare and gave it a happy ending, probably, uh, is uh, the guy who wrote the libretto for Dido and Aeneas. Um, uh, and he's also known in the Encyclopedia Britannica as the worst poet laureate of all time. Uh, so uh, he, he got his, his dirty little hands on a lot of, on a lot of pieces, I'm afraid, uh, but did some good things. Um, uh, so uh, you, you might have to remind me entirely what the question was there. But um, so why was Leah tricky to write, uh, and how did we go with the rest of the Shakespearean pieces? Well, you know, um, he, he was obsessed with the idea of writing Leah throughout his life, um, uh, and had um, an initial really great success with the first Shakespearean endeavor, which was Macbeth, which is a piece I've done a lot, and a piece I think is a magnificent work of art. Uh, and that he wrote with a, a librettist called Piave. Um, and he wrote it in 1847, was the premiere, was very successful, and then he revised it for Paris in 19, 1865. Uh, so he messed with that a lot. Uh, and it caused him a lot of, a lot of strife to write. Um, uh, and it's a masterpiece because what he does with it is take the standard forms and structures that we were talking about of the day and really pushes the boundaries of what music could be 
and how it could flow in order to achieve the magnificence that is Macbeth. The last two Shakespearean endeavors, he, there was a huge amount, years and years of arm twisting to get him to do that. Uh, and it had to be exactly the right time and exactly the right person to persuade him to do it. He'd been in retirement, basically running a farm, decided he was never writing again, a bit like Rossini, uh, for a good 10 years, and it was 1887 when um, uh, Otello finally comes up, and then 1893 when we have the great Falstaff. Uh, and it was only because Ricordi basically stacked the deck against him and tried time and time again to persuade him that he came out of retirement to write those. Um, Lear is tricky because it is, it is universally known as the, the greatest tragedy. The, the greatest tragedy of all time, in many circles, and for good reason. Um, and even with Macbeth, Verdi said, um, you know, this is one of the great works of all time. If we can't do something extraordinary with it, let's at least do something out of the ordinary with it. Uh, so even he didn't have faith in himself to be able to equal Shakespeare's mastery. Um, he was very picky dramaturgically. He was exceedingly demanding of his librettists and would frequently send things back saying, no, 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 no. Um, he wasn't entirely sure of his own abilities to be able to produce something that equaled that, that magnitude. So I think Leah, he just never had the, the forces never came together in the right way uh, that it existed. And we call Rigoletto sort of his Leah. That's, that's basically as close as we get. Um, he picked his projects very carefully, and he wouldn't attempt something unless he knew he had it in him and it was right. And we were just never lucky enough with Leah, unfortunately. If there was one man who could have wrote it, 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 it was it was bad, but it didn't happen. Would you, some scholars write that um, they think very intentionally chose poets of lesser ability that he could manipulate in the way he needed to. Um, would you agree that it's not always great poetry? Uh, yeah, yes, I would. But then I would say that Verdi, it's not that they're bad poets, it's that they are good librettists. Uh, it's, opera functions in a different way, and the way it uses text is completely different to the way Shakespeare uses text. Uh, and Verdi knew what it took to have a good and singable libretto. He actually says that there's a letter where he writes to Piave um, when they're constructing Macbeth, and he, he writes in all capitals. He says, poche parole, poche parole. And then I advise again, poche parole, few words. Doesn't want much text. Because all of that heavy lifting that the language does is what his music does. It becomes subtext, it becomes this palpable well of emotions and thoughts and ideas that's happening underneath the words. So I don't think you're a bad poet at all. I think it was that he needed very specific uh, people who knew what he needed. I was hoping that this way I might draw David in, um, because... Oh no, I was just going to say that um, Falstaff, uh, Verity's Falstaff is based on what many scholars consider to be Shakespeare's weakest play, which is The Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, in fact, I think Harold Bloom calls the Falstaff in Merry Wives an imposter Falstaff. And he's not as funny, 
He is not as lively, he is not as vivid a characterization as he is in the Henry IV part one and part two plays. Um, so, I, you know, I think that just speaks to the point I was making about it. Which Boyito also employed to flesh out the character of the first step. It's not just the very wise of I'm wondering then, um, it's an audacious thing to try and make a, an opera of, of Shakespeare. Um, I tend to think, you're probably going to disagree with me, I tend to think it doesn't usually work if the composer is actually setting Shakespeare. I never find myself at a performance of Ridden Stream not wishing I was just watching a play. Well, that, that's actually also true. Uh, and it seems to be one of the brilliant things about Verdi's Shakespeare plays is that by stripping it of what we would consider the most essential and sacred thing about a Shakespeare play, which is Shakespeare, by stripping it of Shakespeare, he somehow arrives at an emotional power equal, at least, to the plays. And I wonder, Dave, if you could talk about... <laughs> If you talk about what's going on, how, why does music have such a power where, uh, where language may not? As we get there, Verdi never read Shakespeare. His English, he didn't speak English. He only ever read bad translations of Shakespeare in Italian. So he basically, what he got was the distilled essence. He didn't get the, the words. I think this is a, an interesting question about you know why music has this powerful effect on us, um, and when uh, people are are studying music in the brain, they sort of inadvertently become philosophers because they have to understand well what is music, and it's a, like it's a very real technical question because uh, you know is music you know is is this music. This music, where do you, you know, leave music behind? Where does it start? Um, there are so many elements to it, and, and that's how scientists have sort of approached this study. They try to break it down into elements. We have pitch, we have rhythm, we have um, the motor control that comes with singing or playing an instrument, um, and those are the sorts of things that we can identify in the brain by making sort of a contrast of, of um, something with pitch versus virtually the same thing without pitch. Um, and one of the things that I think we've learned from the study of, of music in the brain is that uh, it's, it's often the same thing as you'd expect without music, but more so. Uh, are, are singing, when you're speaking uh, the lines of the text, we, you see motor activity in certain parts of the brain that are responsible for moving the body, and you see auditory activity you know, responding to sound. Um, when you sing, you see more activity in those places. And I think that, and, and the, the regions that affect it are slightly larger. Um, you also see more on the left side of the brain um, for, for speech than on the right side, but in music it's about even. And I think that um, that speaks to, that gives me sort of an intuition for what's going on with music. I think that there are sort of parallel pathways to the same places. You're filling up the same emotional bucket with more than one tap. Um, everything's connected, and through experience and repetition, you build up these uh, connections in your brain that can lead you to emotion through multiple 
pathways at the same time. Um, and that's an exciting thing because it, it makes possible some of the things we're seeing in, in music therapy. Um, and here's where I tie in with the Sound Health Initiative that, uh, that we brought up earlier. Um, you know, a lot of times people are using, trying to use music to help someone who's had a stroke learn how to speak again. And that might be possible because the normal pathway, the part of your brain that can speak, it might still be intact, but the, the pathway that leads to it in your normal life is damaged. But if we have an alternative pathway through music, we might be able to reach that same goal through a different path. And through repetition and music therapy, you can build up that connection to the point where you can start to speak again and start to communicate. Um, and that's a very exciting thing that's only started to be investigated in the last few years. Um, I just think it's a very exciting time to be in this field. And actually, this, this just jogs loose some thoughts in my brain about Shakespeare and how much of his language is intrinsic to our appreciation of his plays. Uh, I think of my favorite filmic adaptations of Shakespeare as being the ones by Kurosawa, uh, Throne of Blood, which is his Macbeth, and Ron, which is his Lear. Now, those movies are black and white, and they're in Japanese, <laughs> but they're still recognizably Shakespearean, the experience of them. Um, and I think this points to something about Shakespeare that I think is important, which is that he's not a poet, or that he's not, strictly speaking, a poet. He's not Milton writing Paradise Lost. He's not Spencer writing The Fairy Queen. He's a playwright, and he is writing uh, these things that are dramaturgical in their effect.
with one brilliant and baffling stroke, bam. We are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. January 1901, the turning of a new century at the edge of time. I collapse and Lear's words are the first of my mind and the last with which I cry out, one button more, one button less. Lear waits in his cell. He has not lost everything. He holds his beloved close and savors the momentary image of peace, of rest. He holds the timid, flickering flame of hope close for protection. He of it, or it of him. Utterance. 
you heard out of, out of context is, is difficult to grasp it but it's sort of a mixture of Shakespeare uh, you might have noticed a quote from the King James Bible not not uh, completely coincidentally the same king for whom Shakespeare was writing King Lear um, there's of course Marjorie Garber in there there is um, later in the the script there's some John Donne there's lots of quotes from um, Shelley from from other other writers um, it's sort of collaged together into a manuscript in the same way um, T.S. Eliot could have made The Wasteland or something. But not, uh, Drew, I hope you'll agree, different than actually the way Shakespeare compiled images. That the, the, the Edgar scene with the trumpet also recalls the Bible and the, and the biblical picture of Revelation. Um, and I wondered if... Uh, if I'm skipping the question I gave you before, okay. but <laughs> I forgot one. I'm, I'm wondering, Rob, if you could talk about whether Verity constructing musical structures in the same way, sort of building on and referring to other uh, other structures from from the Belcanto, from other periods um, in his writing, and then I, I've wondered, Dave, if you could also talk about whether the brain works actually in this way—that it's not a linear sort of collection of facts, but it's the connections between those facts that that are are meaning. Verdi was really revolutionary like that, I suppose. Um, so he starts very much as a bel canto composer at the beginning of his life. Uh, and he, for the first, you know, 16 years of his life, he calls his com compositional life, he calls his galley years. And he writes about 22 pieces in those. Uh, and they really do conform 
to this you know, structure of restatif and then cavatina and then cavaletta, these sort of double arias uh, for, for each important soloist. Uh, then you have a nice concertate and a finale at the end. And the audience expected that. There was a flow to their evening. I mean, this was their social evening. They'd arrive you know, quite early. They'd have dinner and play cards there. They were there for a good six or seven hours every night. What people did was go to the opera house and spend six or seven hours, and they liked it to go the same way. You know, they they wanted to know what they were getting. Uh, the thing about Verdi is that he then gradually breaks down that formal structure, and he does it, and yet manages to preserve the things that are good and grand and wonderful and exciting and theatrical about it. Um, I suppose one of the things that's hard is that the, the piece that is the ultimate culmination of that breaking down, uh, what some people thought was sort of a Wagnerian influence, this through-composed opera, is Falstaff, which is structurally and formally one of the most mind-blowing works of genius you, you'll ever encounter. It's just like Gossamer. Uh, you know, you get little snippets of melody. You never get a complete aria. Uh, everything is an ensemble. The whole piece is a, is a concertate ensemble, you know? Um, structurally, it's unlike anything else. It's unlike Wagner, um, uh, and it's it's delicious. Everything about it is perfect and delicious and completely unique. But audiences didn't like it because of that. It, it was sort of it was a difficult failure, a bit like Leah was, because it didn't follow the conventions. It was almost a little bit too far ahead of its time. It took Toscanini and conductors like him to really push this piece. You know, you will understand it. It might take you a hundred years, but you will, eventually. Because <laughs> uh, it is a masterpiece, as we, we well know. Um, so that, that movement from what was a formalized, very rigid structure, very defined structure, to something that defines any form of structure at the end of his life, is one of the, the great geniuses of Verdi. And Falstaff is not a Wagnerian opera. It is not Wagner, and it doesn't function like Wagner. It's its own little detour in musical history. Unfortunately, never, no one ever managed to follow it. Um, so, at least in terms of structure, he's really vitally important. Uh, you know, Mozart, great composer, in some ways revolutionary, but we don't think of him as being revolutionary. That's not what he did for music. It, it, with structure, Beethoven redefined structure. Verdi redefined structure, at least in opera. Mahler did, you know. It's, um, uh, so yes, one of the great geniuses. Uh, it's very interesting what you're saying about the, the expected and the unexpected elements of this, because um, people have done studies of what kind of music people like. Um, is this something we can break down and, um, and understand? And uh, the main takeaway I've gotten from that research is that uh, people like something that's unexpected, but not too unexpected. They wanted to conform to their expectations of how a piece ebbs and flows and what the cadences might be. But then, if it's too expected, then they tune out, they get bored. And this totally matches with our experience. That's why, you know, these songs that a small child likes uh, is not something that you would go and see on your night out. You know, Wheels on the Bus is too predictable. But, um, when you have, <laughs> it's a good sign. <laughs> but uh, when you, uh, I think it also helps explain why 
um, experts and musicians might like different music than your average uh, Joe who goes out to the theater every, uh, you know, twice a year or something. Um, you, you have different expectations and maybe a, even a different level of detail in your expectations that might make a more complex piece um, totally beyond the pale of your average uh, music goer, but perhaps the, someone, an expert, might see it and, and think this is uh, incredibly interesting. Um, this also, of course, happens with Shakespeare. Uh, his early plays, the line is quite regular. He's very fond of using rhymed couplets, alternating rhyme, sonnet form. It's almost like he's showing off earlier in his period about how much he can master these conventional forms of the day. And by the time you get to Lear, Coriolanus especially, it feels like he's writing to a tune that only he can hear in his mind. And some scholars have said Shakespeare must have been bored with writing a different kind of melody. Uh, it also reminds me of a famous quote by George Bernard Shaw, uh, I believe talking about Richard III, he says that you, you can almost whistle Richard III. That Richard has a very, very distinctive music, and so does Hamlet, and so do some of these other famous Shakespearean roles. Uh, and I think what's, what's difficult about Lear is that it has its own music, but it is very, you know, I actually wrote in my notes, it's very similar to Eliot of the Wasteland, or Pound's uh, Cantos. It is a kind of breaking of forms, a collage of forms. Uh, he's very fond of using enjambment, which is when the, the, the poetry will roll over one line and into the next. Um, and, you know, there are even snatches of other plays in King Lear. The Fool in King Lear, who's a character who just completely disappears from the play halfway through without an ex any explanation, um, sings snatches of a song from Twelfth Night. So you get the sense that Shakespeare is himself kind of quoting from fragments of his own mind, of his own past, of his own history. I think the real reason most of us wish that, that Verdi's Lear existed is because in the sketches he said the main characters would be Lear and Cordelia and Edgar and Edmund and then a contralto to play the fool. Uh, David, I'm hoping you're not gonna break my heart here. Um, Verdi's, uh, uh, well, well, Drew, am I right in thinking that uh, the quarto and the, the folio differ on who has the look there, look there line at the end? Right, so in some versions, his last line is, uh, pray you sir, undo this button, or undo this button, whatever. Right, there are two versions of Lear, uh, the quarto and the folio. Generally, scholars think the quarto was Shakespeare's rough draft, and the folio was a kind of performance draft by his company. And you know, Brian Vickers just put a book out that says there's actually only one Lear, but all the other Shakespeare scholars say, are you insane? That's obviously wrong. Um, but yeah, there are basically two versions of the play that differ in hundreds of ways. And in one of these versions, Lear's very last words are to refer to trying to undo his button. Uh, and in 1901, when Verdi has a stroke uh, in the hotel in Milan, he says to the maid, his last words are, and you just heard me say them, uh, one button more, one button less. And knowing that, that um, 
strokes aren't your specialty. <laughs> Still, I was wondering if, if we as, as sort of dreamy artists are, are just out there thinking that somehow this obsession with Lear throughout Verdi's life may have made that reference come to his mind, especially since he never read it in English, so it would make sense that he did Or whether this is probably just because he was doing his budget in front of the maid, and that's all I was going to say. I do think it's possible. Um, there's uh, the brain is all about connections, and you, you alluded this, to this in an earlier question, I think, that I never quite got to. Um, but we're we're learning more and more that uh, brain organization is not just about this module does this and this module does that, and this brain area and this brain area. It's about networks. It's about connections, and um, those connections are built through lifetimes of repetition and practice. Um, and so I think that when you combine that idea, the idea that the things you've experienced most and thought about most are sort of most deeply ingrained in your brain, when you combine that with the concept that at the end of your life you might lose your resources and fall back on those strongest, most repeated connections, it does make a kind of sense that um, his, some of his last words would relate to some of his deepest thoughts, um, the things that he had thought about most in life. On the other hand, Shakespeare went out drinking with Ben Johnson, got cold, got, a, got, a, got the flu, and died. So, <laughs> had a totally normal death. Not cold from anything. Uh, Drew, is there something about um, Shakespeare's use of music in general? But also the way that it seems to me that in Lear, when the more mad he gets, the place he goes to, in a fundamental way, he starts um, a sing song, at least, if not an actual song. And, and Verdi uses, uh, uses music a lot in, in his play, his big part. Can you just talk about music in the, in the early modern theater and how, it's, how it functioned as a tool? Yeah, I'd say that Shakespeare, you know, I was thinking about this because he's before, he uses music in roughly four different ways, although there are no strict rules. One is, sometimes characters will just quote or sing a snatch of a very popular song. So Beatrice in Much Ado sings Light of Love, which was a pop song from the 1590s that we've lost, I, I believe, the melody to. Um, they were the good old days. The good old days, yeah. And I think it would have a, it would be like if you were, um, in a, in a theater now and somebody started singing a Beatles song and you'd say, oh, I like that song, it's great. Um, but also he, he, he does use it as a kind of proto-opera or proto-musical theater. Act four of The Tempest is a, is a miniature mask uh, in which Greek goddesses come down from the stage and it's almost through composed in a way. Uh, we set it at the Shakespeare Theater to a Purcell-like score that I thought was really convincing as a kind of restoration opera. Um, he also uses musical for miraculous moments. Uh, there's this very strange, mysterious stage direction called still music in Shakespeare plays. And it's often when something magical or mysterious is happening on stage, which I think is a holdover from the Christian cycle plays. And then he uses it in a, in a kind of cabaret or a Bertolt Brechtian kind of way, where it's characters will kind of press pause on the action and sing a kind of sarcastic or an ironic song that's commenting obliquely on the action. So the clown does it in Lear, Festy famously does it in Twelfth Night, he has a series of songs 
that are about death and love and longing and loss, which seem to have nothing to do with the action of the play, but the more you think about them, the more they kind of function as skeleton keys to the meaning of what it's all about. Uh, so music is very important in Shakespeare plays, and it's always an element or an aspect that the director and the creative team have to have to solve in a way, because he was very conscious of using it to create specific effects that mere language or mere acting or mere dialogue couldn't. Uh, just, just before I open it up for your questions, I want to ask Rob the last question. Thank you. Um, the Requiem. Yeah. Um, as Premier uh, Hans Ambrello said, it was an opera in ecclesiastical robes. <laughs> and it's been called the greatest uh, non-opera opera written. Is it, is it a piece of drama? Uh, interesting thing is that bad deal of course he grew up as an organist in the Catholic Church. Um, uh, he, he famously had a fight with the priest when he was seven. Um, uh, the priest, uh, he got distracted listening to the organ music and the priest wanted something. And the priest, priest shoved him down the altar steps. Uh, and he shouted back at the priest, I hope you die from a lightning bolt in Italian. Uh, and the priest did three years later. <laughs> Literally, from a lightning strike. Uh, so he, he felt a little um, uh, shocked by that, I think. Uh, no pun intended. Um, and um, he, for the rest of his life, he wasn't particularly religious. Uh, I mean, he was, he was sort of a, a quasi-religious deep skeptic. Uh, you know, he would drive his wife, uh, Streponi, to church, uh, but he wouldn't go in. Um, and yet he writes this Requiem that is possibly the most performed piece of choral music after the Mozart Requiem, you know. Um, it's, uh, it's strange that he did this. Um, uh, and the first part that came was the Liberame, and that was in honor of Rossini. Uh, and the rest of the piece was composed by a variety of composers, and it didn't receive its premiere until 88 with Helmut Willing. Uh, but it was eventually done as a whole piece of music. Um, uh, and then it was the death, death of the playwright Manzoni, uh, Alessandro Manzoni, and this was uh, originally called, um, uh, he wrote famously, He Promised, He Spars, He, um, which has been set as an opera by several people. And that caused him to want to write this piece. And I think that's why he actually retired. It's, the piece is, is the piece of drama, it's the human drama. It's everything that the human drama is. And it plums the depths of, he wasn't a happy man then. You know, he was, he'd struggled with depression throughout his life. He lived a very sort of stiff, formal life, a very hard life. You, it's difficult for us to imagine how hard he worked in those first 20 years of his life. Incredibly hard. Um, hugely long days, every single day. Um, and I, I think he retired because he'd said everything about the human condition that he knew at the time. Uh, and it's, it's quite frightening and dark. I mean, the DSE ray th thing comes back and it's always as frightening as it was the first time. Uh, but there is also great messages of hope and exaltation and enormous power and vastness and of a Shakespearean uh, stature in there. So I think for him, he didn't, he couldn't write until he got bored. Uh, he was persuaded to come out because he was bored uh, and write Otello and then thankfully Falstaff. But Falstaff was pure enjoyment, you know? He, he decided he might live long enough to compose it, 
He didn't really mind if he finished it or not. Uh, he enjoyed it when it was going well, otherwise he put it aside. Uh, we're very lucky to have those two pieces. Uh, because the Requiem, after you've written Betty's Requiem, why would you write anything else? You know? um, so yes, absolutely, it's a drama. It's the human drama. I love that answer, Rob. Um, uh, also because that's, that's how, for me at least, I think of Lyra's. It's the ultimate piece about the human condition, the extreme, the extreme verge of the human condition. And when I went on um, Sound Health's site today and read some of the, some of the articles there, it stood out to me that, that the opening of, of one of those pages was perhaps the most important problem in neuroscience is understanding what it means to be human. Which I think there's the connection we're looking for. Um, I, I want to open up the floor. I'm ready to get my exercise by running the mic around. My comments are coming from an aging brain. <laughs> and uh, first of all, I was very uh, interested to hear that Verdi did not speak English. And um, I might comment along the line that I don't speak Italian, but I love the music. <laughs> the, I, I'm going to recollect when I was very young, when I first started listening to music, seriously. My roommate at college, I guess I was 16 at the time, <coughs> wanted me to listen to Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony. And it took me four listenings until I began to understand the nature of the music, because it was really quite alien to me, that type of music at that time. And as, as I got a little bit older, when I was in my mid-twenties, I reached a point with, with careful listening, I was actually able to listen to a quintet and hear all the instruments or voices you know, and sort them out in my own mind as I listen. As I've gotten older, the ability to do that has gone away. And there lies what I have to say, what I found was a little bit of a problem with a little bit that, of a demonstration of this work is that I was unable to listen to the music and to, at the same time, understand what the narrator was saying. And so I, I offer that, not that it's necessarily would be the case for other listeners, but for someone of my age, which is in my later 80s, it was just too much for me. Thank you. So it's not your ears and just the actor before you. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> Very well. It had, it had to do with my ability to listen to more than one thing at the, the same, same time. time. And I wanted to ask a question about opera. When you spoke of the um, Greatness of opera. Are you referring not only to Western opera but also to um, Indian, um, Japanese, Chinese, other operas, combining uh, uh, music and, and, uh, and uh, drama? Absolutely. I mean, 
Uh, my field happens to be the, the Western canon because that's what I grew up with and that's what I can really speak towards. But the wonderful thing about music in general and especially uh, music for the theatre these days is that it's, you know, with Spotify and YouTube and, and, and the fact that we can get around the globe in hours and, and all of this, you know, anything is up for grabs stylistically. And most modern composers are employing at least as many parts of the Western musical tradition as they can. There's classical, and there's jazz, and there's blues, and there's pop, and, and, and most modern opera composers are writing with all of those in their palette. Um, but also employing other cultures, and most of the new operas that I'm doing, um, I'm working on a piece you know, by Camilla Sankram at the moment, and she um, often employs uh, music of other cultures and instruments of other cultures. I work a lot with Huang Ro, who employs Chinese instruments all of the time in the Chinese tradition. So uh, opera's just sort of embracing it all right now. Uh, Western opera is this sort of global concept, uh, and we, depending on what we're talking to, we can we can pull from that tradition or that tradition. So, of course, it's it's all cultures, absolutely. I'd like to ask a follow-on question to what was just asked and answered. I heard the word networks in connection with brain, uh, and I wonder how narrative fits into the ability to understand, make sense of, and enjoy, and learn from both theater and music and opera in particular. Uh, I happen to be married to a musician, and while I understood Liszt or Mozart, Immediately, I could not understand Cage. I couldn't understand Stockhausen. I couldn't understand me. What I really couldn't understand was how the person performing knew what was coming next. <laughs> and so the narrative, what was the narrative, the liturgical narrative that underlies any requiem, of course, gives a framework, particularly if you're familiar with that liturgy. But why should Indian music from India, or uh, an old play, or the Chinese opera that I've had to endure as a member of a U.S. delegation, <laughs> why is that also to the Western liturgical tradition, musical tradition, something that we should, that our brain can even begin to understand or appreciate? by um, uh, expanding connections and pathways. And that's the delight of, of, of growing up, is that your, ex your field of experience gets bigger. And, you know, uh, sometimes people come up to me and they say something that I sort of disagree with. And generally my answer is, is you should travel more. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I believe that with music as well. Uh, it's it's a, an enormous world out there and it's full of magic and wonders anew. Uh, and it never stops, it's, it's bigger than we are, and you can keep learning throughout your whole life and expand your field and, and these connections. Um, I, I was totally unable to appreciate, you know, what I would call plinky-plonky music at one point in my life. And now I do a ton of it. Uh, and I'm, I consider myself sort of, you know, uh, person who's really au fait with that style in many ways. Um, I wouldn't say I liked it at first, um, and, and still there's a good chunk of it that I don't like. 
Um, but by working with it and exposing yourself to it, it's like anything new. You, you will form an appreciation for it, even if it's not an active like. So I, I advise you to travel. I advise you to travel uh, musically uh, and uh, expand your palette because it will just, uh, there are more joys out there, ultimately. I think that's what I'd say. And I guess what I would just, I would second everything that the distinguished gentleman to my right just said, but I would also, uh, in, in terms of narrative, uh, you know, I was taught at Yale by the great Eleanor Fuchs, who was a second wave feminist scholar and also a practicing Buddhist. And these two things, I think, dovetailed into her poetics and the way she taught us dramatic theory, which is that linear narrative is just one uh, recipe or one way of formulating the ingredients list to drama, and that you can have an infinite number of structures that suspend narrative, that have circular narrative, that play with recursive structures, and that this is, in part, I, th I think, made accessible by a Buddhist way of looking at the world, which is that we are all specks, we are all dust, we are all part of a big universe that uh, goes around outside of us, and that looking at things in terms of linear climax and denouement is a, a, a fundamentally individualistic way of thinking of narrative and looking at the world. Uh, Cage was also a practicing Buddhist. So to Cage, to, to Rauschenberg, to writers like Samuel Beckett, um, uh, the, the linear was, was not as interesting as the rest of the world happening around, side, around linear. It, another way of putting this, I think Cage writes about silence and music. And that, what do you call, I think you were talking about this at the beginning of your talk, what do you call the, the, the noise of silence in between the notes? in a melodic scale. Well, that's music too, if you orient your way of thinking. Uh, so, like, like Rob was saying, once you start to think in these terms, it kind of breaks you of traditional conventional forms and you can't hear quite the same way anymore. And plinky plonky all of a sudden sounds like a euphonious symphony. It also, you know, it also informs your love of uh, Western classical stuff is that you know, if you have all of these other things that you can draw on, it just sort of highlights what's so wonderful about that in a new way. Um, uh, and it, they're never as scary as they seem. Uh, I mean, you know, even Wozzeck isn't as scary as it seems. I mean, it's frightening, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but like, you only have to sit through it two or three times before it starts to make real sense to you. Uh, and it's the same with everything you give it a try. Were you really curious about the neuroscience side of this, or you just don't need a bomb bag? I'm sure. Yeah, the, the neuroscience of narratives is, is really interesting, and it's just starting to happen now. Um, there's uh, this new technique that they call intersubject correlation, and it's based on the idea that um, when two people see the same movie, their brains respond more or less the same way. And if they respond more or less the same way, that means that um, you know, that part of the brain which responds the same way, responding reliably, is important for processing that movement. And the thing that that allows you to do is get around the problem of repeated trials. Normally when we do an experiment, we have to do the same thing a hundred times. And so it has to be a very short thing or you'll have the person in the scanner for 300 hours. So um, this new technique allows us to 
um, have very long um, you know, stimuli, very, very long things that we're studying, um, and that allows us to study narratives in a way that we never have before. Um, and there's some really interesting work that comes out using, recently using the technique they use it to look at uh, watching a movie, uh, they pick Raiders of the Lost Ark for some reason. Um, they use it to study um, conversations between two individuals that you know, evolve over a long period of time. And I think we're due for someone to study how uh, a longer piece of music, with all its ebbs and flows and arcs, um, you know, is represented in the human brain. Um, so I'll be very interested when that study comes out. Uh, one more question? You've come full circle. <laughs> this has to do with uh, the pre-20th century Western music and the relative ease with which all cultures seem to be willing to listen to it. Um, I would invoke the ghost of Pythagoras, that here we have something of a mathematical basis which would make this these musical forms more accessible to, to the ear. We don't need a lot of training in order to appreciate it. Do you agree? The reason that people connect math and music is because they're fundamentally an appreciation of the same type of beauty. They're an appreciation of abstract beauty, math and music. I, hap I happen to think that uh, I was a pretty terrible math mathematician uh, and I'm a pretty average musician, uh, but I do think that one of the things that's defined me is that I do have a very high appreciation for why they're pretty. Um, and yeah, I could look at a mathematical formula or, or a proof and think, wow, that's just gorgeous, you know, or the way fractals appear, and it just was mind-blowing. And the same thing with the piece of music. I could look at a Bach fugue and, and just be blown away. Um, uh, but that abstract beauty exists as well in the works of Pollock and Kandinsky. Uh, it exists, uh, you know, it took years and years for people to accept the Impressionists. And now we look at people like, you know, works of Van Gogh, and we look at works of Monet, and Monet doesn't look particularly modern to us. It's just, yeah, the, the problem with art is that art represents, I know we're getting a bit here, uh, but I feel passionately about it. Art represents sort of the pinnacle of what our culture and what our minds are doing at the moment. It's a representation of our culture, where our culture is. And because art is right at the forefront of that, we're generally lagging a good hundred years behind understanding it. So it takes a little while before we catch up to where the art is, when it's sort of cutting edge, you know, when it's right at the, the, the modern stuff. Uh, but I promise you, in a hundred years, you'll look back at Berg and Botzek and Schoenberg, uh, and, and you'll look at them as naught. You really will. And times will have moved on, and they'll have changed. But um, uh, sometimes, you know, it takes a little while to, for greatness to be acknowledged and under, understood as a universal concept. We do acknowledge Kandinsky and, and Pollock and, and Berg and Schoenberg to be great, monumental geniuses now. 
Uh, but I wouldn't say that as many people appreciate them as they do Mozart or Beethoven or Brahms. But in time, maybe that will change. Maybe it won't. Um, but uh, it's, it's, that's where we are. We're generally a good hundred years behind. I, I love that this evening's conversation sort of organically wandered into the interconnectedness. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, just, I just want to close with this. Um, King Lear ends, ends basically with this question hanging in the air, is this the promised end? Which, of course, is where we took our title from. Um, and in the same way, Verdi's Requiem ends with the Libre May, which, which, for the Catholics in the audience you may know, the Libre May is not part of the Requiem Mass. It is part of the graveyard service after the Mass, and it stands in Verdi's Requiem almost like a question mark at the end. Um, and, so, and some listeners find it actually um, disconcerting at the end because it doesn't end with a message of peace. It ends with a plea to God to, to, to liberate oneself. Um, near, near my flat where I was living in London was the Christian Relief Fund, and I loved on an on a early morning walking by it because there's a great sign outside of it that says, we believe in life before death. <laughs> Which I love. And, and I think, I think, um, I think Shakespeare answers the question of is this the promised end inside the play in this, this tiny scene for two small characters where they talk about Cordelia's reaction to hearing um, the news of her father. Um, it's my favorite line from the play. It says, her smiles and tears are like a better way. Uh, and I love to imagine that, that the answer to the question is no, this isn't the promised end. But to, to arrive at whatever end it is we, we hope to accomplish, we have to, we have to dig in in this life and get our hands dirty. Um, and part of that is, is making art. Um, I want to take this opportunity to thank very much our, our three guests. Please join me. that of course we are an arts organization. We are a not-for-profit arts organization. Um, so, so if you have, if you're able, if you have, um, if you're, you have some will to give us a donation tonight, then there's a place in the back for that. We very much appreciate it, and we hope we'll see you all at the performances we run uh, from September 8th to the 23rd at the Source Theater, um, and hope to see you all there. Thank you.